0: Uh, good evening. Uh, my name's Tim. Uh, married to Melissa, dad to Poppy. Um, uh, I don't know, support spurs for my sins. Um, light FIFA. There you go. Um, good to see you. Am I feeding back, Harry? Where do you want me? Oh, we're all right. Okay. All right. Nice one. Um, uh, there was one, to, remember when you got your first iPhone? Remember that? Remember that vividly? Um, there, there you go. That's the new one, iPhone 14. Can't afford that. That's fine. Um, the uh, There was a time when uh, I think it might have been like the iPhone 5 I had. Um, and uh, I don't know about you, but I never update my phone. I find it really frustrating when the system's notification says you need to update your phone. And I'm like, I just can't be bothered. And so I think the iPhone 5 or 6 I had... And um, for about two years, two and a half years, for the whole contract on my phone, I just didn't update it. And then um, I went to download the updated version of an app, I think it might be Instagram, and then the phone said, I'm too old, I can't handle the information of that application that you're downloading, you need to update my operating system in order for me to work properly, And so begrudgingly, I I did so, and then finally the phone fully functioned in the way that it had designed to be. Like my phone uh, at that point, um, there is so much in the world that is slightly broken, isn't there? Um, There's a war going on in a different country called Ukraine. Um, There's climate change. Can we reverse it? I don't know. Is it possible? There's, there's the cost of living. Bills are rising. Your rent will increase if it hasn't already. Um, there's systemic racism and sexism. There's personal debt. There's national debt. Um, there's loneliness. There's loss. There's grief. There's a lot in our world, isn't there? Sorry to depress you on a Sunday evening. There's a lot that's broken, it's not, it's not quite right. And as followers of Jesus, or of those of us that are exploring this idea of following Jesus, um, whilst we know that the world is broken, how, how might God change? How might He fix it? How might He intend to make the world a better place? That's the question that I've got for us tonight. So if you have a Bible on you or in your pocket on your phone, um, we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. If you haven't got a Bible downloaded onto your phone, complete permission at this moment to open up Google and Google Ephesians chapter 1, okay? Um, Whilst you're doing that, let me just give you a bit of a background to Ephesians. It was a letter written To the church in Ephesus, but it was recognised, or it is recognised by scholars, people who study the Bible, to be what's called a circular letter. So it was intended to not just stay in Ephesus, but to be sent round the churches that a guy called Paul, uh, who was an apostle, he was someone that started churches, um, it was intended that letter would go and be sent round other churches. Um, And so... There's, a, there's an essence to which what Paul was saying then to that church there, albeit in a particular context and framework, it's also intended to be relevant information for every church for all time in the future, like Trinity Cheltenham in 2022. So we're going to read Ephesians 1 and we're going to be in verse 15 to 23 and the question that we're trying to work out is how might we expect God to make the world a better place? All right? So let's, let's read. I'm reading from the NIV, the New International Version, um, and I'm reading from verse 15 all the way through to 23, and then we'll delve into it a little bit, all right? So this is what Paul writes. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I feel like I've just been at a Michelin star restaurant and consumed like this really rich food that I'm, my, my, my tonsils and my taste buds aren't quite mature enough to maybe really fully grasp what's going on, but I'm going to try my best to help us understand what we've just read, all right? So, Paul's prayer is that the eyes of their hearts, the reader's hearts, your hearts, my heart, would be... Opened. Now, in our culture, when we talk about heart, what we often think about that only speaks of is our emotions. Because the heart is seen in our in our cultural moment to govern our emotions. But in ancient Near Eastern culture, and when the Bible was written, when the Bible talks either your heart about your heart, your mind, or your soul, it's about the, the, the center of who you are, it's the operating system to your life. The thing that governs every decision, every action, every thought that you make. It's your heart, your operating system. And so what Paul is wanting to say here is that I really hope, guys, that God would update your operating system. Because there's some bugs in it that need fixing in order for you to operate in the way that God intends for you to operate. In the order for you to function in the way that God intends for you to function So what are these bugs, these fixes, these things within the operating system as your hearts are opened, the eyes of your hearts are opened and the revelation of wisdom to help you know God better. What what are they? Well, Paul, Paul says it in verse 18 through to 19. The first in verse 18 is that in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The hope to which he has called you. Hope, again, sometimes we can think that the idea of hope is uh, it's like tentative optimistic thinking. Like, oh, I hope you have a great day. I hope you have a really good holiday. I hope the Blues beat Villa. I hope that Tottenham win the league. It's like optimistic thinking. But biblical hope isn't just, it's not optimistic thinking, right? It's a certain expectation. It's like when you order a pizza, Okay, It's like when you order a pizza. You know that that pizza's going to arrive. It might take a bit longer than you'd expected, but you know that, the, that it's going to come. And that kind of sense, it, 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 there's an analogies break down at some point, right? God doesn't look like this guy, okay? But it's, it's this kind of confident expectation. Andrew Lincoln, who um, writes a commentary on Ephesians, he says this, Paul wants the readers... To know that God called them to live in hope, the confident, not tentative expectation of God's presence, power, and victory. Friends, our hope is that this broken world isn't the end. It's not the end of the story. As followers of Jesus, as Christians, we have hope in what God has done through Christ. And if you want to know how the story ends, spoiler alert, in Revelation, it says this. He, God, will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So one of the bugs that, want, that Paul wants the operating system to fix is this sense that we would have hope. A confident expectation of who God is and what he's up to and what he'll do. Secondly, as we read on, so hope to which he has called you. In verse 18, he continues to say this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. What on earth does that mean? Has anyone ever watched Antiques Roadshow? I haven't, but I watch Gogglebox. Okay? And on Gogglebox the other day, there was a story. Uh, they don't tell you the name of the person, but they, te- they show you the story. Um, but this is a gentleman here. It will come up on the screen. And he had brought with him this vase that he had chosen from uh, this charity shop. And it cost him all of £7.99. There's the vase on the, uh, on the table there. It's a bit grubby, it's got a few like imperfections about it, but as he hands it over to the expert to explore it and, and to look at it, what the expert realises is, this, this, is just no, this isn't just any ordinary vase. No, 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 no. This is from apparently what's called the Ming Dynasty. It's like the earliest dynasty in Chinese history and this guy found this thing from thousands of years ago in his local charity shop and spent £7.99 on it his choice out of every vase that he could have picked of all the tat he chose this there was something about this that was special and as the guy valued it and this is the face that he showed right no no sir your 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 vase is not worth 799 it's worth nearer to 10,000 pounds 10,000 pounds and then his face went like that. <laughs> He chose the item, and now this is something that, yes, his family inherits, but he chose it. He chose it, and he paid the price for it, and it was worth so much more, but he paid the price for it. Notice in in Ephesians, Paul doesn't write that we would know the riches of our glorious inheritance It's his glorious inheritance. That's what Paul writes. It's as if God chose us. He chose us from all the tat that he could have picked. He chose us. Peter O'Brien in another commentary on Ephesians says this. God has placed a high value on his people. And they need to live with that assurance despite their circumstances. God has put infinite value. He chose us. Didn't need to, doesn't have to, but he does. He chooses us. So, hope, inheritance, and finally as we read on, Paul writes this. So I'm going to read it again from verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened... In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Um, well, I've, uh, I've gone back to school, right? Um, and as part of my life now, I have to journey to London every Monday, um, it's, it's a long day and I knew that I was going to have to do this journey um, from like, since, like, throughout the whole summer and I was getting a real headache and how do I get from um, my home to the bus station and then from the bus to college because like, it's a half an hour walk, 40 minute walk from home, it doesn't seem long but for my body it's long. Okay. And, um, and I looked in the sort of uh, stuff with National Express, and it says that you're allowed to take on a, a, a bicycle, right? So I'm like, oh, great. And then in the fine print, it says, the bicycle has to be foldable. I'm like, oh, flipping heck, right, okay. So God, I feel like you called me to do this, but I'm really, it's a real struggle. The journey's a real struggle. It, there's, there's, it's just hard, okay? It's hard. And I was like, God, I, I just I I, I just I need a foldable bike. I'd love, I'd love a foldable bike, and um, I mean, amazingly, uh, you can see where the story's going. I was at a family's house a couple of weeks ago, just having a cup of tea, and um, went to, you know, as a good, polite gentleman, went to wash up my mug in the kitchen after the cup of tea. No, all right, if you're not that person, be that person. Um, and there was a up bike in the kitchen. I went, oh, just, I'm looking at buying one of these. You know, I'd love, I'd love to get one. And they're like, oh, I just have it. Don't worry. It's it's, it's clutter in the kitchen, take it. I was, oh, wicked, all right, nice one. So I've now got this foldable bike, right? Um, Silly story, but the journey felt like a bit of a battle for me. Um, I'm not the fittest of persons, but having a foldable bike just makes it easier now to get from home to the bus in the morning, and then when I get off the bus, it just makes it easier to get to college. just makes the journey less of a battle, all right? Paul, when he's writing Ephesians later on in Ephesians 6, we, we get the bit where he talks about the armour of God. And in other bits of the Bible where Paul writes, he talks that we're in a spiritual battle, okay? And what Paul is saying in Ephesians 6.11 is, is this, right? He says this, I think it's going to come up um, because I haven't got it in my Bible. Well, it's there, but I can't turn to it. Um, he says this, put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. God wants us to survive the battle. All right? He wants us to survive the battle. And and because of that, he provides the means for us to do so. He provides the means for us to do so. So... Hope, inheritance, power. It's all to do with us, isn't it? There's something about it. God chooses us. He provides for us. So how does, how does God intend to change the world? How does he intend to make the world better? Could it be something to do with us? Could it be something to do with you and I, people who follow Jesus? Let me read verse 19 all the way through to the end. So we've just talked about power for us believe, who believe. And then Paul goes on to write this. That power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that's invoked, not only in the present age, but in the ones to come. And God placed, verse 22, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. In a society like ours, change, the ways in which change happens, looks a little bit like this, okay? It's, it's like a pyramid of, of ability to change, all right? And at the top is politics and wealth. Like if you can have a lot of money or if you can be in politics, you have a lot of agency to change the way in which things are. You can make sure that the world is a better place depending on your political leaning. Next is perhaps social status and your education. If you get the right grades, if you get into the right university, if you know the right people, then you're able to make an effect and make a change. And if you know Jesus, then that might help. And the church, well, you know, yeah, fine. But really, they're on the margins of society now. Have you noticed it's harder to be a Christian in this world? Anyone notice that? Just me. In the verses that we've just read... From God's perspective, it's actually, it's actually like this. Jesus is at the top. He, he's over all things. Everything is under his feet. And the Bible, the, the words that we've just read is that Jesus is the head. And the language there, is, is, um, it alludes to the sense of being a leader, being in charge. And then Paul writes that the church is his body. So we're his body and we we relate to him as the head. So Jesus is above all things. He's above us, the the church. But from God's perspective, actually the ways in which he intends to make the world a better place is through his church, into politics, into wealth perhaps, into social status, into education, into all areas of the world, your workplace, your school, your college, your university, your family. Jesus is at the top. He's above all things. His name is higher than any name, not just in this age, but in the ages to come. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the very words that we've read, he writes this He says, The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts by which he fills everything with his presence. There's a sense that God's intention perhaps is to make the world a better place through Jesus, through you and I, in the places that we find ourselves. Now that doesn't mean we have grounds for arrogance. That doesn't mean we walk around and go, well, do you know who I am? Because actually I belong to the church and the church is the most... No, it's not about that, right? We're nothing without Jesus. But how does God intend to make the world a better place? Well, he, I believe he invites us to team up with him to make the world a better place. He doesn't need to, but he chooses to. He, it's his plan A. He hasn't got a plan B. We're it. Look at someone and say, we're it. Like, we are it. We're, we're, this is the way in which God intends it. I think this is the way in which God intends it, okay? Now, historically there has been, and I'm coming to land now, okay, you'll be, you'll be pleased to know, but historically there's been, there's been two general, this is fun, isn't it, I like Tony Adams on Strictly, anyone seen it? Um, he did a great one last night though, if you saw that, my word, what a man. Anyway, historically, I don't know why that came, historically there's been two approaches um, to the church being Jesus' hands and feet. This, this idea that we are... Um, his hands of feet. We're his ambassadors. Two general ways. The one way is, is separation. We stay in our corner. We stay quiet on social issues. We create a subculture. We have Christian music, right? And we have Christian literature. And we separate ourselves from the world. And we go, it's too bad and scary out there. I'm staying in here because it's nice and safe. Separation, right? And we never go to the house party. We never go clubbing. We never we never hang out with mates who aren't Christians. We we stay in our Christian holy huddle, okay? That's one way. The other way is assimilation. We become like the dominant culture. Yeah? So we retweet and we like whatever the most popular truth is. We go, yeah, yeah, that's that's what I agree with. Yeah, like that, retweet that bad boy. And then we, we look around and we sound like the prevailing culture. We drop the F-bomb every now and again, and we might call someone to see you next Tuesday when no one's looking. We assimilate to the culture that surrounds us. You'll find us in the kitchen playing beer pong because we're relevant. So we either separate ourselves or we assimilate. Now, I hope you can see that both haven't had a great rep. So is there a third way? Is there a third way? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing again and... um, he writes, he writes this. I'm going to try and read it. No, yeah, just throw it up on the screen. It's all right, Faf. He, he writes this. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world unto himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. So is there a third way? If if God intends to make the world a better place through Jesus in us and through us, if it's not separation and it's not assimilation, what is it? Reconciliation. Reconciliation, the idea that we're drawing two warring sides to peace. We reconcile people to God. What does that look like? Well, I, I, I don't think it, it's, it's like outlandish things. I, I think it's genuinely simply being people of love. Like, I just think that's what it is. Uh, And I just want to share two stories that might help illustrate what reconciliation might look like day to day, in the mundane of your life. Because, spoiler alert, life is pretty mundane most of the time, all right? And someone once said that God, God often comes to us dressed in our every ordinary life, not necessarily in the spectacular, right? The mountaintop's great, the view's great up there, but have you noticed that most of the life happens in the valley, right? So, so what does it look like to be reconciliation people in the everyday ordinary life? So two stories. The first happened to me today. Um, okay. Um, I, I've battled with um, loneliness a lot in my life. There's been periods in, in moments in my life where I battle loneliness. And um, and it comes in waves and it goes and, it, and, you know, it tells me lies and things that I'm not worth and whatnot. And um, in the waves of that, I can feel quite low and I can feel quite distant from God. Um, and uh, it, it, Melissa and Poppy went home to Birmingham yesterday um, to be with their family, which is a normal thing. But it's just meant today I woke up feeling a bit lonely. I'll be honest. I just felt a bit rubbish. All right? Felt a bit lonely. And... Um, came to church. I could do every Sunday because I'm paid to be here. Um, (laughs) um, A little insight into me. If I feel awkward, I have to tell a joke and then I'm okay. Um, But I was just sat having a coffee and just minding my own business. And um, I was sat next to a young person and he didn't know my, my day. He didn't know how I was feeling. He didn't know what was going on in my life. And do you know what he did? He just asked me, Tim, how are you? 11 years old. How are you? That was it. That was it. And then again, at the end of church, I was just stood in the courtyard out here and a young lad came up to me and he was like, is it all right if I just stand next to you because I feel awkward? I was like, yeah, mate, it's fine. You can stand next to me. He's like, okay, cool. How are you? how are you? And in those moments, a space opened up in me. And I didn't notice it then. But at the back, I was just drinking a cup of tea and on my my mug it says, "Where where did you feel God present today? And I just asked the Holy Spirit, God, where were you present in my day? And he just showed me those two faces and helped me to see that they reconciled me to him. Just by saying, how are you? So never underestimate tomorrow just going up to someone that you wouldn't necessarily talk to. These lads are 11, 13 years old. I'm 32. It's not cool to hang out with a 32-year-old when you're that age. But they just came up and said, how are you? So don't, don't underestimate. Reconciliation can just look like that, right? Just noticing someone and just, how are you doing? You all right? Do you want to go for a cup of tea? You Okay. The second is a story that isn't mine. It's one I heard many years ago, and it was of someone in a workplace. And um, their office was a really toxic place, really toxic, and there was a lot of um, uh, oh, bitching. Vic is not here. It's fine. Um, there's a lot of that going on, and people talking behind each other's backs, and it was just apparently it was not a nice place to work. But they were like, God, like you, you've placed me in this office. And you want me to be your hands and feet in this place, so would you just show me how I can be present, be your presence, minister reconciliation into this office? And, um, and what they felt prompted to do was to buy everyone chocolates. Not pray for anybody, right? Not set up a roller banner and say, Alpha here, <laughs> all right? Just, just buy chocolates, and, um, and they were crafty because they brought chocolates for themselves. And what they did in one morning, they came in early to the office and they put chocolates in everybody's drawer at de- in, in the desks at work, including their own. And then as people came in and started to work, they opened their drawer to get the stapler and there they found some chocolate. Wow, guys, I found some, I found some chocolate. And then they go over there and like, oh, yeah, I've got some Maltesers. And then over here, oh, I've got some Revels. And then apparently this person, obviously he, it was him that bought the chocolate, right? He opened his drawer was like, I've got some Galaxy. You know, kept it super humble. But the story goes that from that day, the, the culture within the office changed. People started to talk to one another and actually asked them, like, so, you know, how's your day going? Like, you know, oh, that email I saw was really hard to write. Like, well done the way you wrote it and stuff like that. Like, just by buying some chocolates... They ministered reconciliation, I believe, into that space. So what does it look like? Well, I just think it looks like simple things. But a lot of it is about being for other people, not for us. It's being for other people Leslie Newbegin, who was a um, he was a missionary who spent a lot of time in, in India, and then in the 80s he came back to England and he wrote this book called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, and basically it was his kind of treatise to the church of how to be a mission in a missionary. So the guys that were up here in Macedonia, it was like how to be on mission where you are, right? Because you do, again, spoiler, you don't need to go to a foreign country to be a mission, like to be on mission. I'm sure Kevin will tell you different, or he might agree, but, so anyway, Leslie Newbigin wrote this book, and in it, he says this, he says, churches must renounce an introverted concern for their own life, and recognise that they exist for the sake of those who are not members, as a sign an instrument and a foretaste of God's redeeming grace for the whole life of society. The church, friends, the church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. God called us. He chose us. He provides for us. Christ is the head. We are his body. And the church finds herself at the center of God's plan to make the world a better place. And so by stepping out of separation and stepping out of assimilation and stepping into reconciliation... We become the fullness of Christ who fills all things in every way as we begin to reconcile the world to him.